it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have episode 244. We have four great listener questions we're going to answer tonight. So I will go ahead and get us started. So here we go. I have, hi, guys, Jason here. Just wanted to thank you for the awesome information you give on the podcast. Keep it coming. I'm looking at doing DCA for index funds as another investment vehicle for retirement. I have a current brokerage account for my financial advisor, but they charge about 30 bucks a trade. So I was going to open an account with Charles Schwab to avoid fees. For context, I'm 34 and looking to retire around 6570. I'm thinking of $40 a month towards a Vanguard S&P ETF fund. I believe it's VOO as the ticker symbol. Is there a better fund since I'm looking at long time horizon? I know I'm looking for a low expense ratio, but what else should I be looking at? I know tax applications are different for mutual funds versus ETFs, but so are expenses. I understand you can't give a direct yay or nay on a fund or stock, but I'm looking for a few options that have your thoughts on, and I could go deeper on my own view. Thanks. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on Jason's really excellent question? Yeah, well, welcome to the investing world, Jason. Hopefully it's a lot of information at once, but hopefully it's not too overwhelming. I would say your mind's in the right spot. And when it comes to buying a good index fund and DCA or dollar cost averaging into it, you really can't go wrong with either ticker symbol VOO, like you mentioned, or there's another one called ticker SPY, also an S&P 500 ETF fund. And I believe there's one more ticker VTI. So you could really do any of those. And they've really gotten to the point nowadays where their fees and expenses are so competitive that it really doesn't make much of a difference. I mean, back when they first started to make these index funds and ETFs, we were talking about huge differences between an advisor who used to charge 1% 
And now these index funds, which charge fractions of a percent. So it's done great things for the industry. But once you really get to the ETF S&P 500 funds you have available today, picking between one or the other is really not worth your time. They're going to give you all about the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I think the interesting thing about them is because there's so many choices, it can get a little overwhelming and a little confusing. But I think the three that Andrew mentioned are all great choices and they're available pretty much anywhere. And I believe you can even buy them directly through Vanguard. So you could even open an account with Vanguard and do the trades uh, through Vanguard and have them manage the account for you. So you wouldn't even have to do it through Schwab if you didn't want to. And I believe they would charge the same transaction fees. So it would provide you the same option. I don't think you're going to go wrong any way that you do it. I think you're in the right place and you're in the right frame of mind and getting started and being consistent and establishing that habit now is going to do good things in the long run. So I applaud you, Jason, for reaching out and asking this great question. So I hope that helps answer your question. So with that, let's move on to the next one. So I am a 27-year-old who is about two years into light investing with a portfolio of over $1,500 thus far in investments to learn for myself. I am married and my wife comes from a family who has a trust fund on her mom's side. Their trust fund is ran through a broker that's supposedly been in the family for many years. My wife and I's life savings is under an investment account through this broker and has split our life savings account into two different mutual funds. Personally, I feel this broker is robbing us blind with his lack of effort into putting our money in these funds that are, air quote, private and exclusive to anyone not investing through either him or his company by receiving a percentage of what we earn through those dividends and fee for managing our portfolio. My wife has a strong financial background in accounting, and I think we could do better. How can I convince her or what questions are good to ask this broker to do more work than putting in in mutual funds? All right. So uh, this is a great question. And I know we talked a little bit about this off air. So I'm going to let you take uh, the first stab at, uh, at answering this. It's interesting because I think the easy answer is to say, oh, yeah, an advisor is screwing you over and they're not doing anything for their fee. And so I should just do it myself. And, you know, that's certainly been the case for a lot of people, as they've found out over the last 10, 20 years. But when you start talking about a trust fund and just some of the implications behind more complex investment choices. So, for example, for a trust fund, where we're talking on the show, Dave and I, a lot of times we're coming from the perspective of somebody who's just starting and they're building a portfolio. So they're building for growth over the long term, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. When you start talking about trust funds where there might be significant capital already in there, and then you have the complexity of a trust fund could have multiple people involved. So one person might want this out of their trust fund, while another person might want that out of their trust fund. And so you might have people withdrawing at different rates. So they might not all be wanting to build a portfolio like we kind of talked to a lot of people on this show. So there could be different goals and then you have family dynamics and then the strategies behind how you're trying to achieve your goals are going to change depending on what you're trying to do with the money. And so I think it's tough because if there's a trust fund, we don't know anything about what that entails on the other side, but there could be a lot of complexity to it. And by the way, just because an investment is private or exclusive doesn't mean they're robbing you blind. There are 
investment opportunities that are available for people with more money that's just not available for average investors like us. As an example, private equity. Private equity is like Dunkin' Donuts is a good example of a company used to be public. You could use, you used to be able to buy their shares on the stock market. They got taken over by a group, a private equity group. And so they don't have to do... I don't know if I'm describing this good, but they don't have the same limitations as a stock market investment does. And they basically get to choose who they invest with instead of just being able to invest with the whole public. So that is something an advisor can help you do. I would always push for more transparency and figuring out what exactly they're investing in. But just based on what I'm reading off of this question, I wouldn't necessarily agree to the idea that, yeah, I should be running this myself if there's other factors involved. I would agree with that. And I think the thing you always have to keep in mind is what are the options that the advisor has to generate the returns that you're hoping for? And also, you know, what is their background? How much you're not going to know exactly how much time they're putting in and the different investments that they may come across. Like Andrew said, the more money that you have, you will have options for other opportunities that us mere mortals may not have access to. And, you know, the private equity is one. There are also different kinds of funds that you can get access to. You can also get access to bond portfolios that you know we mortals would not be able to access as well. So there are going to be other options that they may have available. I think maybe instead of being super frustrated about the situation, I would probably encourage you to reach out to the person and try to have a meeting or two or three and see what kind of transparency you can get from that person to see what kinds of things they're doing. You know, if you are a member of the family and you are a member of the trust, then you have the right to know what's going on with those accounts. Whether that means that they provide you with financial statements so you can see what's actually happening or whether you're sitting down and having a conversation to learn what it is that they're doing. But I guess always remember that there are many, 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 many different ways to get to where you want to go. And just because you have a a particular idea in mind, it may not always gel with the other people. And that's, I guess, one of the challenges when you're working with a team of people, whether it's your wife and you or your significant other and you, or whether it's six or seven other family members that are in a trust, it's not going to be only your decision to make on how things go a certain way. You're going to have to work with those people to get their buy-in because depending on what the trust is and how it's set up, different people will have different responsibilities or ownership, if you will. And so they'll have different levels of, I guess, access as well as decision-making abilities. You'll have to figure all those things out. But they're all great questions to ask. But I think the first thing I would do is sit down with the broker and figure out exactly what it is they're doing, talk to them about their plan and what their plan is. I think if you know that those few pieces of information, you can start to figure out a better idea of what it is they're actually doing or not. And I always like to give people the benefit of the doubt until they give me a reason not to give them a benefit of the doubt. And so I think it's an easier way to approach people instead of coming at them from like, you're screwing me (laughs) and I want you out. Maybe come at it from a perspective of, hey, show me what you're doing and how you're doing it. And they'll be probably very happy to teach you. And then if you decide that it's not the right way, then you can talk to the family and say, hey, this is what he's doing. This is what he's costing us. We're not getting where we want to go. I think there's better options. But it would also behoove you to maybe have the options in place before you have the conversation with the family so that you can actually 
show them proof that, hey, these are the things that we could do that would be a better better option for what is going on. Let's say that the broker, just for example, is throwing all the money into crypto and that you're not comfortable with that because of the speculative nature of it. And I'm not saying don't invest in crypto, so don't come at me about that. But <laughs> what I am saying is if he is doing it and you're not comfortable with that, then that's something you definitely need to have a conversation with. So I guess I would just start with the conversation and ask them what they're doing and how they're doing it and then kind of go from there. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And I especially like the idea of approaching it with an open mind and, and more of a curious nature rather than being accusatory. You know, the listener did mention being about two years into light investing. There's a big difference between investing kind of casually on the side and being a professional who does this all day long. And he did mention that their life savings is split into two different mutual funds. And I know we've railed about mutual funds in the past, but depending on how he structured the mutual funds, maybe that's the way that he's getting the diversification based on the type of risk tolerance he thinks you guys should have. So again, I would go back to what Dave said of really trying to figure out what's going on and looking at these people as your allies and not your enemies. Because 
<laughs> it's sometimes tough to have a investing and finance podcast when there's a million and one ways to to manage a portfolio to achieve good risk adjusted returns, lower your risk, diversify all those things. At the end of the day, you do have to do what you're comfortable with, and obviously, you don't want to get robbed. I think the more you can learn, the better decisions you'll probably make. Totally agree. That's great, great advice. All right, let's move on to the next question. So we have, hi, Dave and Andrew. Thanks for creating such a great podcast. I'm currently invested in 28 stocks in my brokerage account. I have between 175 and 5,100 in stocks for each company. Even right now with the market not so hot, I've got about 300% in gains since I initially invested. Right now, three of my stocks represent a total of 75% of my portfolio. I remember reading that a singular stock shouldn't exceed 10% of my overall portfolio, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about this. I don't want to sell shares of these three stocks because they're all on track to continue doing well, to my knowledge, Tesla, NVIDIA, and Apple. I can't really afford to add more to my other positions at this time, sadly. Do you think I should do a deep dive into the other 25 and perhaps sell some to add to some of the other promising positions or just leave it alone and see what happens? For reference, I'm a 33 and not planning to retire anytime soon. Thanks so much. You guys are the best. Rachel. So, Andrew, this is going to be a fun question. What are your thoughts on Rachel's excellent question? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, I love it. There's so many, so many ways we could do it. And so I'm just maybe going to vomit out a couple ideas and maybe bounce back and forth because there's a lot to unpack here and this could be fun. I have no qualms of saying, look, I'm a long-term shareholder of Apple. I think I've made that public before and subscribers know about that. So I'm obviously bullish on Apple. Tesla, I was wrong about Tesla talking them down for years on the show. They've turned it around in the sense that they've become profitable and they're still growing like crazy and they somehow managed to skirt bankruptcy and survive and do crazy well. I love the company. And NVIDIA has super great growth drivers. I mean, the future is computing, artificial intelligence, all of the things that data centers enable. And NVIDIA sits at the center of it. The problem is that, yes, I think having three stocks as 75% of a portfolio is a bad idea. And I don't care if Apple's one of them. I think it's a bad idea for most investors. There's so many reasons why we could go down, but I would just say maybe the start is businesses change a lot. And if you think of a company like NVIDIA, their main product, the GPU graphic processing unit, which is now used in all the data centers, that was not even really a hot thing 10 years ago. So they basically came through and they destroyed a lot of other types of chip makers because of their new innovative technology. So if they were able to do that in 10 years, ask yourself, well, what's going to happen in 10 years later? Is NVIDIA going to be still the best technology or is it going to be something else? So I think just based alone on that, do you really want to put, whether it's 25, 30% of your portfolio into a single stock that is in such a fast moving industry that, you know, it really you could have serious losses. And to give one example, I feel like we use this one a lot, but that's a really good one is that you had Cisco back in 1999, 2000. They were the hardware stock, the technology hardware stock to own during the dot com boom because the internet was just starting to take off. So the internet 
we all know about the internet and how crazy that's been. Cisco was the infrastructure of the internet and everybody was buying their routers and, and all of their networking equipment. The problem is that stock got way too expensive and then it crashed. And I believe it still hasn't recovered from that. And so at a time where the S&P 500, the market has recovered and done very well since 1999, 2000, Cisco has lost money. And if you have that happen to your portfolio and it makes up 25, 30% of your portfolio, you're going to lose to the market, even if you're like Warren Buffett. It's just the way the numbers work out. So you really, really have to be careful about putting such a big portion of your portfolio into a stock because I understand it's been like one of the best businesses in the last five years. But what's to say the next 10 years aren't going to be different? And you could say that about many companies, by the way. So when you're investing, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. So that's how I would look at the 75% waiting. What about you? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think just to kind of, I guess, hammer the idea that Andrew was kind of talking about with the, you don't know what's coming. If you look back 20 years and look at the top 10 companies in the S&P 500, only one of them still exists, and that's Microsoft. If you come back another 10 years from today, going back 10 years, there's maybe half of them are in the S&P 500 still. So a lot can change in 10 years. And especially when you think about technology and how quickly things can turn, I don't think any of us need to be reminded of how quickly Apple became the iPhone, became the thing to have. When not that long ago, it was, you know, having the... Like a BlackBerry. Yeah, BlackBerry. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Blackberries or the flip phones. Those were the phones to have. And Apple came along and was so vastly superior that those phones and those companies quickly became obsolete. And NVIDIA is kind of the same idea. If you even just look at the semiconductor world just in general, Cisco, companies like Intel were at the top of the mountain. And now they're not. Well, Cisco kind of still is, but Intel definitely is not. And AMD has passed them. And keep in mind, these companies have all been around for 30, 40, 50 years. So they aren't new companies. Same with NVIDIA. They've been around for 30 or 40 years, I believe. And it's a great business. And I'm not you know, detracting from the business. The guy, the CEO that runs it is a really, really smart cookie. And you know, all three of these CEOs, if you had to rate them, are all excellent CEOs that run the companies. You know, Elon Musk has his challenges, shall we say, but you can't argue that he has built a, a great company. And like Andrew, I will echo that I was wrong. And it's, you know, far exceeded my expectations of five years ago, for sure. And so having those stocks run up all that much that I'm sure you've seen since you've owned them has probably been awesome. But the thing you have to remember with all three of them is that we don't know what's on the future. You don't know what is coming. And none of us can imagine something that could be better than the iPhone. You know, some 19-year-old kid out there right now is probably imagining that very thing and could be creating it right now and we just don't know about it. And Tesla, as great as they are, there is a lot of challengers coming for them. All the major car companies are quickly accelerating their, I guess, embracing of electric vehicles and it's becoming a thing. And it's not just here in the United States, it's in China, it's in Europe. It's in Japan. It's it's all over the world. And so how will Tesla fare in five or 10 years? I don't know. I, I don't think any of us know. You can't deny that it's done well up to this point, but will it continue to have that same success over 10 years? History says no. 
But, you know, Elon Musk has proven that wrong many times before. So I, for one, would not bet against that. But that being said, having that be 25 or greater percent of your portfolio, especially when you have three companies like that, maybe if you had one that was that much, that would be okay. But having three, that's a pretty stiff uh, percentage. And uh, like Andrew said, if any of those three go down a lot, you're going to struggle to get back to even for a very long time. And that's where the risk comes in. I guess the next question then is, what do we recommend that Rachel does? Like, How should she handle that? Well, I'll put it this way, if it was me, right? Yeah. I remember having a portfolio that I didn't particularly like. And instead of doing a radical change, I made slow changes over time. Part of that was shifting my strategy more towards long-term rather than short-term value, getting better companies. But you know, it's obviously totally up to Rachel what she wants to do. If it was me and I was trying to more diversify my portfolio, it's probably something... Again, I would probably try to do over time, especially if I was trying to pick my own individual stocks because it takes time to get to know companies and a lot of them are not great values a lot of the time. So that kind of stuff goes in and out and that's probably how I would look at it or just sell low enough to be comfortable and then put the rest in an index fund. That's a very easy way to do it too. I totally understand the idea of like being 33 years old, don't have to retire till 65. Translation, I can handle volatility right? That's the rallying cry of holding on to really expensive stocks. But I would really caution against that because it's the same story, just different characters every time. And we saw it in 2021, we saw it in the dot-com boom. And you just have to be careful. If you look at the number of people who say that, I have a long time horizon, so I'm just going to hold on to a stock. There's very few long-term survivors of people who actually did well with the strategy like that. The price you pay does matter. And we're all starting to remember that again. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. That's good advice. I think that's probably, I would probably go with the same option. I would probably sell some of the positions of the three and try to reduce your holdings and then maybe add them into other holdings that you have. I think a lot of people sometimes spend a lot of time, probably more time looking at other companies to invest in as opposed to getting more knowledgeable about the companies that they do own. And I think once you get more knowledgeable about the companies you do own, then it can give you a lot more comfort on whether you can continue holding that position or whether you want to add to that position or whatnot. And, you know, I have two companies in my portfolio that are like 20, 22% and like 15%. And I'm comfortable with that, but I'm also working on building up the other percentages so that those in time will become less of a bigger size of my portfolio. And that's the other thing that you can look at doing as well. I know you said you don't have money at this time to add to those other positions, but maybe as time goes on, you can do some of those things too. But I don't think you need to make any drastic you know, changes today. I think you know the slow and steady approach that Andrew was talking about, I think is probably the best way to go. And that's the way I would do it. And that's the way you told me to do it. And it worked really well because it's easy to get like gung-ho about wanting to change a direction. And you have to be careful doing that because it takes time to make good individual stock decisions. And you don't have to do it all at once because stocks are around almost 24-7. Yes, they are. (laughs) Yes, they are. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right. Let's move on to our last question. So I have, hello, thank you for your great articles. And today I just purchased your investing tool package. I have created a pretty elaborate model for valuing companies, but have been a little cloudy on one issue. I am of the opinion that not adding SBC, which stands for stock-based compensation, to cash flows is the right way to go when performing a DCF. And I do this in my model. One unique aspect of my DCF model is it forecasts the DCF value per share for future periods, whereas most DCF models just present the current value. What I like about this is it gives me an idea of what a stock might be worth at any future point in time, one to 20 years from now. Here's my question. It seems that because I am not adding back SPC to those future years, I should also not be attempting to adjust the share count for any expected dilution. It seems correct to adjust for expected buybacks, but not for stock issuance related to SBC. Does this logic seem correct to you? Sorry, I'm out of message space, <laughs> Sean. So what are your thoughts on Sean's great question? Yeah, Sean, I think it's really cool that you've created your own model. I like the idea of looking at it out multiple years and, and kind of visualizing the intrinsic value of that changing over time. I think that's really cool. It is. In my mind, if you're adjusting stock-based compensation in the cash flow statement, I wouldn't adjust the shares outstanding because you're basically doing it twice. You'd be double counting. So I agree that you would want to adjust shares outstanding based on how much buybacks you perceive. I do that personally. And really, you don't see that talked about much, which kind of shocks me. But I don't think you would have to dilute the shares because, again, the numbers that show up on the cash flow statement are trying to project what that cost is to the company in the future. I guess on your end, Dave, looking at the free cash flow of the firm side, if you're looking at a DCF model like that, how does that fit in or is it a similar idea? Basically, the way that I do it, and this is what I learned from Professor DeMotorin, was that you don't adjust the share count at all. And when you look at the stock-based compensation, you basically, you look at what the value of all those shares are outstanding, and then you subtract that from the total value of the company. Let's say that you look at the company and just for ease of numbers, let's say that the value of the company is $1,000 after you're done with your DCF then you would look at the value of those share-based compensation that has not been exercised and you look at that and go, okay, that's worth $100. Then I would subtract the $100 from the $1,000 of the total value of the company and then I would divide that by the shares outstanding and that would give me the value of the company. So that's how he approaches it and that's how I kind of like to look at it as well is that it's in the cash flow statements, it's being adjusted already and so we're accounting for that. But I've said this before, stock-based compensation, whether you account for it or not, it is money that you owe somebody. And at some point, it's going to come due unless they don't exercise their shares, which I'm going to guess about 85 to 90% of people exercise their shares at some point. It does have an impact on the value. And so whether you subtract it at the beginning or whether you subtract it at the end, you have to account for it in some way, shape, or form. And so I think if you add it back in, 
then you have to account for the shares. If you don't add it back in and you just leave it out, then you can just leave the shares as is, but you have to account for it somewhere along the line in the valuation because it is, it's like debt. It's money that does have an impact on the value of the business because if the business gets sold, then that has to be accounted for. The people buying the business have to account for that contractual obligation in one shape, way, shape, or form. And so those are things that you just kind of have to consider. You know, I like the simplicity of the way that he does it because it doesn't get into the possible convolution of adding it back in and then, you know, increasing the shares and then taking the shares back out and just any of that kind of stuff. It just, it leaves the shares the same but it subtracts from the value of the business, kind of like a debt. It looks at it like it's a debt. And that's the way he looks at it. And that's the way I kind of like to look at it as well. Yeah, I would just point out, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it visualized in my head because Dave and I have done so many of these spreadsheets, but maybe it's confusing for somebody who hasn't seen the two spreadsheets that we share on the package that we sell. But I know for you, Dave, yours is primarily going through the income statement. Mm-hmm. And, and using some of the balance sheet, whereas mine looks at the cash flow statement. Mm-hmm. So we're really, we're using the same financial statements, but at different places to arrive at the same place. And so what Dave's saying makes sense if you're looking at the income statement, which is a free cash flow to the firm model. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying when I adjust the free cash flow from the cash flow statement, that makes sense for a free cash flow, the equity model. Mm-hmm. So again, you can do one way or the other. And it's confusing, but once you get it, you're like, oh, that's actually kind of nice because right. then you can almost double check your valuation. Mm-hmm. If you want to go on Twitter and start a fight, you, <laughs> all you have to do is just say stock-based compensation and, and that's it. <laughs> and then you're going to get you know, angry birds from all different kinds of directions. So it, it's a very polarizing subject. It is something you have to tackle, especially depending on what kind of businesses that you're investing in. If you're buying tech, yeah. more younger tech-heavy businesses, stock-based compensation is going to be a very, very big part of the financial part of the business, and especially early on in the business. And you're going to have to account for it because it is a very big cost that those businesses are taking on. Whereas if you're looking at a company like Wells Fargo or Walmart or even Amazon to a certain extent, there is stock-based compensation. It's way, way smaller portion of the financial business. And so it's not necessarily something you need to concern yourself with overly. But if you're looking at a company like, I don't know, you know, Mongo MDB or Square you know, Block now, even Facebook, you know, these companies that are spending a lot of money to attract talent are using stock-based compensation as a means to attract talent. And, but you have to account for that when you try to value the company because it is a cost to the business at some point in time. Yeah. I mean, Buffett had controversial things to say about it in, in 2003. Here we are 20 years later and it's still a hot topic on Twitter. Yeah. I think that's oh, yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a long time, it's going to be until they change the accounting rules, which happen about as fast as glaciers moving until that changes. Yeah. This is going to always be kind of a controversial topic. All right. Well, I guess with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us those fantastic questions. Keep them coming. Those are a lot of fun. And hopefully you guys got some good information about our discussions today. If you have any questions about anything that we talked about today, and I'm sure stock-based compensation will probably be high on the list of that, go to our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. 
search bar at the top of the page. Can't miss it. Type in stock-based compensation and you're going to find all kinds of great articles. It'll help you learn more about that topic as well as all the other stuff that we discussed today. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.